You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, medical mistakes and misconceptions. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. So today we're going to dive into the annals of medical history once again and talk about some ill-conceived ideas and bad stuff that happened. Honestly, we've, we've done this topic a few times and I don't have really much more preamble than that. So why don't we get to it? Yeah, let's talk about some bad stuff doctors do. I'm going to start us off with a discussion of Dr. Henry Cotton. Content warning, probably for the whole show, but specifically for this segment, for complete disregard for patient autonomy, historical (laughs) discussion of mental illness and all the unpleasantness that that entails, and just, man, a general medical horror show. So let's get to it, shall we? I feel like I haven't seen this particular gem energy in a long time, and I really missed it. (laughs) so sweet. You seem very excited about this topic. Yes. Manic, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, it is a little manic. (laughs) The early 20th century was a period of great change in medicine. In the previous century, discoveries by Ignaz Semmelweis, John Snow... You know nothing, John Snow. Previous episodes. (laughs) And Louis Pasteur, who I don't think we've covered. Oh, we definitely Uh, have. Oh, maybe. At least in passing. Yeah. I was reading recently about how he falsified a bunch of data, actually. Really? And they only found out about this a few years ago because part of his will, this is Pasteur we're talking about, part of his will stipulated that like he would donate his papers, but they could not be released publicly outside ah. of his family. And then eventually when I think his last living male descendant died, it was finally. Yeah, so. Well, and <laughs> yeah. didn't also Gregor Mendel falsify a lot of his data? And oh, they yeah, only yeah, found yeah, out yeah, because he, it was oh, like yeah. too perfect. He did a lot of data massaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tradition in science. The fruit flies were in on it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> off the rails already. In the, in the middle of the first sentence. It was a long sentence. Okay, so in the 18th century, Discoveries by Semmelweis, John Snow, and Louis Pasteur, among others, had promoted the germ theory of disease from a quaint curiosity to the foundation of modern medical science. Hooray! With that whole bacteriology thing sorted out, many physicians began to see psychiatry as the new medical frontier. While theories of miasms and evil spirits were no longer taken seriously in scientific circles, Mental illness remained largely mysterious. Most explanations offered in the early 1900s centered on either the eugenic theories of Francis Galton or the ideas of childhood trauma espoused by Freud. Into this controversy stepped Dr. Henry Cotton. Cotton was taught by many of the leading lights in the new field of psychiatry. 
including Dr. Aloise Alzheimer, who would go on to describe pre-senile dementia in 1906, and Dr. Adolf Meyer, the first psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In 1907, at the age of 30, Dr. Cotton became the medical director of the New Jersey State Hospital at Trenton, formerly known as the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum. Cotton's approach to psychiatry has been described as progressive. He introduced many reforms at the hospital, including the institution of daily rounds among hospital staff and the abolition of mechanical restraints in patient care. Henry Cotton was also willing to entertain new ideas about the causes of psychosis. It was reportedly Adolf Meyer who first introduced Cotton to the idea that mental illness might have an infectious etiology. Physicians had long observed that acute organic processes could alter their patient's mental state. This is what we now call delirium, or acute confusional state. Meyer and Cotton became fixated on the observation that hallucinations and delusions could occur in patients who had high fever, you give me fever. and became convinced that mental illness and criminality, which were then, and are now, often conflated, were caused by bacterial infection. Cotton claimed that this was the case even when there was no sign of infection aside from the mental illness itself. He called this condition focal sepsis. As for treatment, listeners might expect that perhaps Cotton would treat his patients with high doses of antibiotics. That's certainly how we treat sepsis today. Unfortunately, penicillin wouldn't be discovered for another two decades. So Cotton began to practice instead what he termed surgical bacteriology. Oh my god. <laughs> Zip. <laughs> I'm cold. Oh, cold. <laughs> that is to say, he started pulling out his patient's teeth. In June 1920, Cotton reported that his team had performed well over 4,000 tooth extractions in the previous year a number that jumped by 50% over the next 12 months. By 1921, the average patient at the mental hospital was having 10 teeth removed on admission. Unfortunately, Dr. Cotton found that tooth extraction alone was sometimes insufficient to cure his patient's insanity. <laughs> oh no, he began, he began performing tonsillectomies as well. No! If the patient still showed signs of mental distress, he would continue operating. Usually the colon would be removed next, harboring, Jeez. as it does, a plethora of microorganisms. And then the spleen. Often the gallbladder would follow, but sometimes it was the testicles or ovaries or cervix that came out next. Oh, God. But he would usually start by taking their teeth. As you might imagine, rates of post-operative morbidity and mortality were rather high in the days before antibiotics. And many of Cotton's patients died and forgive me for lampshading the irony here, of post-operative sepsis. <laughs> I'll quote here from a 2005 article in the Journal of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Law. In 1922, in a paper delivered to the American Psychiatric Association, he reported on 250 colon operations undertaken at Trenton. He maintained that the results were very encouraging. 25% of patients had recovered from their insanity. 15% had improved. 30% were unimproved, and 30% had died. And our friend Tiber will be joining us this evening. On account of a slight case of death. This last figure 
did not deter him. I'm honestly shocked it was only 30%. Like, it's still yeah. hard to take out your colon now. So there were not full colectomies in a lot of cases, but we will come back to that 30% number. Okay, okay. That same year, the New York Times, which, as we know, was consistently on the right side of history, <laughs> wrote, <Ooh. laughs> quote, At the State Hospital at Trenton, New Jersey, under the brilliant leadership of the medical director, Dr. Henry A. Cotton, there is on foot the most searching, aggressive, and profound scientific investigation that has yet been made of the whole field of mental and nervous disorders. There is hope, high hope, for the future. Many of Cotton's patients came to realize that they were in danger. (laughs) But those who resisted his ministrations were reportedly physically restrained, ironic considering his progressive attitude toward restraints, and forced into the operating theater. Oof. Quoting again from Psychiatry, Psychology, and Law. An 18-year-old girl with agitated depression successively had her upper and lower molars extracted, a tonsillectomy, sinus drainage, treatment for an infected cervix, removal of intestinal adhesions, all without affecting improvement in her psychiatric condition. Then the remainder of her teeth were removed, and she was sent home, pronounced cured. (laughs) Yikes. It's reasonable to question at this point whether Cotton was himself convinced that his ministrations were actually helping people, or whether he had other motivations. For the very little that it's worth, it does seem to me that he was honest in his convictions. Reports indicate that he had his own son's teeth removed after, at age 13, his son began to exhibit changes in temperament. (laughs) At age 13? Oh no, how unheard of. Did he become surly and uncooperative? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing a detoothing can't fix. (laughs) Just a defanging. Nothing a defanging can't fix. (laughs) Despite his high mortality rate, Cotton remained popular both with the public, who were grateful to finally see a cure for mental illness, and with his colleagues, who supported him during a New Jersey State Senate investigation into the hospital that was launched in 1925 at the behest of former patients. Quoting again from the New York Times. Eminent physicians and surgeons testified that the New Jersey State Hospital for the Insane was the most progressive institution in the world for the care of the insane, and that the newer method of treating the insane by the removal of focal infection placed the institution in a unique position with respect to hospitals for the mentally ill. Now found at Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Henry Cotton continued to receive support from politicians and the medical establishment, even after this inquiry. But eventually, Faced with a mounting number of deaths at the state hospital, his old mentor, Adolf Meyer, who remained a believer in Cotton's work, assigned Dr. Phyllis Greenacre to visit the hospital and compile an independent review. Dr. Cotton was not pleased, and reportedly attempted to stymie Dr. Greenacre's attempts to collect data. Dr. Greenacre's reports were largely critical. She disagreed that Trenton provided a more wholesome environment than the typical asylum, and described Cotton himself as singularly peculiar. (laughs) She also found that the hospital records were in complete chaos, disorganized and often self-contradictory with inconsistent statistical methods. Later statistical analysis would suggest a staggering 45% post-operative mortality rate, much higher than Cotton's already horrifying 30%. But Greenacre's report was never finished. Dr. Meyer reassigned her before she could complete it, and Henry Cotton's peers displayed little interest in investigating the matter further. It would be another five years before Dr. Cotton was removed from his post at the state hospital at Trenton, 
and it wasn't for the reason that you might expect. Quoting one last time from the Journal of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Law. Ironically, it was greed that brought about the end of Dr. Cotton's formal tenure. He had diverted many of his most affluent patients to a private nursing facility where he could supervise their surgery. It had been remunerative. The era of the Great Depression brought with it a backlash against such entrepreneurialism. In 1930, Dr. Cotton was removed from his position of medical director so that he could pursue his research activities without, quote, administrative constraints. Wow. Madhouse, a 2005 book by psychiatric sociologist Andrew Skull, details Henry Cotton's tenure at New Jersey State Hospital. Skull opens the book with a quotation from The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, by Lawrence Stern. I'll quote it here. It is the nature of an hypothesis, when once a man has conceived it, that it assimilates everything to itself as proper nourishment, and from the first moment of your begetting it, generally grows the stronger by everything you see, hear, read, or understand. Skull argues that this story demonstrates the extraordinary vulnerability of the mentally ill to victimization, and the hollowness of professionals' claims to police themselves. According to Skull, psychiatric patients at Trenton were still regularly being treated with tooth removal as late as 1960. Wow. Yikes. Oof. Although as soon as you said, not for the reason you think, I was like, tax evasion! Definitely tax (laughs) evasion! That's how they always get them! (laughs) Well, I was wondering if he went to star in Little Shop of Horrors as the dentist after. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oof. This isn't my something nice, because you can hardly describe it as nice. But if you have a strong stomach, I recommend Steven Soderbergh's medical drama The Nick that aired on Cinemax. Several years ago now. It was good. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And the second season features Henry Cotton, played perfectly, in my opinion, by John Hodgman. Oh, goodness. It is an excellent characterization. We never got to the second season, but it's on on my go back and watch list. Mm -hmm. Recommend. Would recommend. Yeah. I think Clive Owen does a good job of showing how that whole, like, house story might have actually ended for real. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. It does not end well. (laughs) Yeah, we should go back and watch more of that. Like a surgeon. Hey! Cutting for the very first time. Like a surgeon. Here's a waiver for you to sign. So we're going to move on to another horror story from the history of medicine. And Lauren is going to tell us about the destruction of the Institute of Sexology in Berlin. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 to 10 says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Now, we all know I'm not big on the Bible, but in researching my topic for this episode, I kept comparing the destruction of the Institute for Sex Research, or sexology, the German translates either way, with the current worldwide shift towards strong-arm populism and its backlash against queer and trans folk just trying to live life, and that quote just kept ringing in my ears. Smarter people than I have made this comparison before, but they're not doing this segment. (laughs) As I'm sure our listeners are aware, 
There are currently over 280 state bills in the United States to limit or curtail the freedoms, movements, or options available to trans and queer people. Over 30 states still accept trans panic as a defense or as a murder charge. You are a factory of sadness! England has earned the online nickname of Turf Island for its stance propagated in both Parliament and the newspapers. And, while Canada's Bill C-16 has enshrined gender identity or expression into the Canadian Human Rights Act, and Bill C-4 has banned conversion therapy for gender and sexual differences, we still have Conservative provincial parliaments making noise about following suit with the Americans. While some anti-LGBTQI activists may believe that transgender people were invented in 2016, any surface scratch of history will tell you that gender and sexual differences have been a beautiful tapestry for as long as we've been human, and before. Hell, our Western societal concept of gender really only dates back to the Victorian era. Follow me for more of these topics on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give your handle, hun. At Red Valkyrie. Also me, Marissa McCool editor of this podcast and perpetual yeller of telling these people to go fuck themselves. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. While Henry Cotton was searching for depression in the teeth, one of the 20th century's pioneers of gender and sexuality, Magnus Hirschfeld, was founding the Institute for Sex Research in Berlin in what was then known as the Weimar Republic, but was still officially Germany? I don't know. The interwar period was weird. The Institute for Sex Research only existed for 14 years between 1919 and 1933, but was born out of Hirschfeld's Scientific Humanitarian Committee, created in 1897. He created it after seeing the trials of Oscar Wilde. The Institute was a non-profit foundation that housed a research library and medical and psychological facilities. Primarily, the Institute focused on the doctrine of sexual intermediacy, which posited that every human trait existed on a scale from feminine to masculine. Hirschfeld maintained that sexual orientation was innate and not a deliberate choice, and he believed that scientific understanding of sexuality would promote tolerance of sexual minorities. His sexology research was driven by the belief that the sexual ideology of Judeo-Christian civilization was a serious obstacle to the understanding of sexuality and to the reform of laws and practices that regulated it. In 1928, Hirschfeld founded the World League for Sexual Reform, which is known as WLSR, which has its roots in an early conference that he had organized in 1921, which was the first international conference for sexual reform on a scientific basis. He can't come up with short titles, but I mean, it's German, so... <laughs> <laughs> that is German! The WLSR called for reform of sex legislations, the right to contraception and sex education, and legal and social equality of the sexes. Hmm. Nice. Sadly, the WLSR included in its 10-point platform eugenic birth selection, but mm. the other nine points are items that we are still fighting for today, like the rational understanding of intersex people, access to birth control, and the economic, political, and sexual equality of men and women. Again, this was the 1920s, so the idea of people beyond the binary was not wholly realized, Though Hirschfeld did work for a time under the idea that homosexual people, especially homosexual men, were known as the third sex. Hmm. He eventually abandoned that idea, but he was one of the propagators of it. While Magnus Hirschfeld was organizing conferences and writing groundbreaking papers, the Institute itself was also flourishing. The Institute became a point of scientific and research interest for many scientists of sexuality, as well as scientific, political, and social reformers in Germany and Europe, particularly from socialist, liberal, and social democratic circles. Over 20,000 people per year used its services wow. around the world. 
Institute scholars included straight, gay, bi, and trans individuals. Hirschfeld coined the term transsexualism, which we've moved past, but <laughs> identifying the clinical category which his colleague Harry Benjamin would later develop in the United States. So he was basically the father of all the different branches of his study. Hmm. Transgender people were on the staff of the Institute, as well as being among many of the clients there. Various endocrinologic and surgical services were offered, including the first modern gender affirmation surgeries in the 1930s. Well, hmm. In early years, the Institute attempted testicle implantation from straight men to gay men in an attempt to cure homosexuality. Mm. Oof. This did not work. That's not how any of this works. And it usually caused disastrous problems and the need for castration. Oof. And it was abandoned for the much better practice of adaption therapy, where gay people were aided to learn how to navigate in homophobic society. Yes, that's much better. <laughs> much better. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> wow. That, there, there's, a, there's a whole lot of distance between yeah. one and the other there. A real 180. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Let's, let's, let's stop doing this. Hey, how about we just talk to you? <laughs> Normally, it's much more incremental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure it was, but these were the yeah. two different points. <laughs> so despite the actual practices of the Weimar Republic, there were still laws in place that made gay acts illegal. Some of the work of the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, including getting a repeal of paragraph 175, which was the German law criminalizing homosexuality, but the law was actually not completely removed until 1994, which was four years after the reunification process of East and West Germany. Yeah, timeline sounds realistic. Yeah. yeah. I actually had a moment when I was writing this segment thinking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I was kind of musing at it to Ashlyn, and about the reunification process and how it has seemed to slip from the public consciousness, especially here in Canada. Do you think of the reunification of Germany ever when you're hearing about like Merkel or anything? I do sometimes, but I follow some German history buffs on Twitter. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I think like the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was too young for it, but I know of it and seen all the pictures and stuff like that. Like, yes, that's a moment in time, but it still doesn't occur to me that a metropolitan city like Berlin was divided like that, that yeah. the country was just cleaved straight down, like not even down the middle, but like in a horribly weird way. And it doesn't compute that 30 years ago or not even 30 years ago, like that was... To be fair... I mean, you can look at Israel today and see yeah. mm -hmm. a lot of parallels there. But as this ongoing war in Ukraine is teaching us, sometimes we have to reckon with the fact that we have different reactions to similar events based on where they happen in the world because of our biases. And we have to confront those biases. Yeah, I, I guess. And how much attention they get. Yeah, like yeah. We're Yes, sure. definitely. It just seems like it has changed so dramatically. Yeah. And, and some places that are still dealing with this or now are dealing with this haven't changed as much. And I think mm -hmm. that's part of what makes it so bizarre. Because yeah. if you were born in 2000, let's say Germany is Berlin is this place, Germany is G7, whatever, world leader kind of thing. It's strange to think that not just over a decade before your birth, it was completely different. Mm -hmm. Because it's changed so much, whereas some places haven't changed as much because conflict is ongoing and things. That's all I'm saying yeah, yeah, with it. It just it's such a contrast. I had duck and cover drills in school. Wow. In the 80s. So yeah. <laughs> so that was a bit of a non sequitur, but with the framing of this segment, I can't help but worry about basically everything. Can't help but worry a lot these days, and not for nothing. You're yeah. not alone. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, Magnus Hirschfeld was outspoken, gay, and Jewish, a trifecta that did not go unnoticed in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Oof. Can't especially imagine. In, yeah, especially in the Weimar Republic. In November of 1929, internal pressure in the Scientific Humanitarian Committee forced Hirsch to resign as the head of its board, mainly over his belief that homosexuality was a biological determinism. As in, you don't choose to be gay. Between 1929 and 1933, Hirschfeld remained the director of the Institute, but the political climate in Germany was, as we all know, changing. Populism and its brother fascism were on the rise, mostly due to the Great Depression and the extreme inflation it brought. To appease the public after the collapse of a coalition government, in January of 1933, President Paul von Hindenburg appointed Adolf Hitler as chancellor, supposedly at the head of a new coalition. That did not go as planned. In February of 1933, the Nazi party, which was Hitler's party, and he only had two seats when he was made chancellor, by the way, the Nazi party launched its purge of the gay clubs in Berlin, outlawed all sex publications, and banned all organized gay groups. By the end of March, so only a month later, Hitler used the Reichstag Fire Decree and the Enabling Act to create a state of emergency to effectively grant himself broader power to act outside parliamentary control. Hitler promptly used these powers to thwart constitutional governments and suspend the civil liberties, which brought about the swift collapse of the democracy at the federal and state level, and the creation of a single-party dictatorship under his leadership. See how easy it is? Just a couple of months. Hmm. That's actually trying not to entertain conspiracy theories. But the Reichstag fire is one of those things where I'm like, that was probably a false flag thing, right? Like, they probably did that on purpose. But... I've had this at the same too. time, like fascists and even liberals are really good at just seeing opportunities and taking advantage of them too. Like so, yeah, just use yeah. whatever comes your way yeah, and twist it. We're recording this a couple of days after the announced merger of the NDP and Liberal at the federal level. Well, merger is a yeah. strong agreement word. to not force another yeah. election. Yeah, I'm not scared. But the center party and the center right party joining together are center left party. No, center Sorry? being the NDP and the center right being the liberals. They're skewing things okay. way over. I am moving the Overton window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. 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 Let's let Lauren finish their segment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're back to Hitler. Deutschland is happy and so the Institute for Sex Research was a target for the Nazi party, obviously. Again, in March of 1933, its administrator, Kurt Hiller, was arrested and sent to a concentration camp, though he was able to flee and he did survive the war. Hirschfeld was in Switzerland in May 1933 when the Institute was attacked by the Nazis. The buildings were seized, and most of the library and scientific materials were destroyed and burned. These Nazi book burnings photos that you see, if you see them... Mm -hmm. in textbooks or on TV or whatever. Those were from the May 1933 and the attack of the Institute. Hmm. Most of those pictures were the destruction of Hirschfeld's work. Decades of scientific and social research were destroyed in a week, specifically targeted because they dealt with gay and trans topics. Oh, that's fucked up. Between 12,000 and 20,000 books and journals and an unknown number of images were destroyed, including a multi-year study on intersexuality. Addresses and information seized from the Institute aided roundups of gay or bi men who were sent to their deaths in concentration camps. Murderous actions, such as the Night of the Long Knives, would not have been possible without these stolen lists of clients and researchers. Though he stayed in Europe, Hirschfeld never returned to Berlin. He moved to France and continued working on research, including a treatise on racism, 
where he argued that Nazi racism was only an extreme variant of prejudices that were held throughout the Western world, and the differences between Nazi ideology and the racism that was practiced in other nations were differences in degree rather than differences in kind. Smart guy. Mm-hmm. Hirschfeld argued against this way of seeing the world, writing, quote, If it were practical, we should certainly do well to eradicate the use of the word race as far as subdivisions of the human species are concerned, or if we do use it in this way, to put it into quote marks to show it is questionable. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I admit I have cherry-picked through the varied career and scandals of Magnus Hirschfeld. (laughs) He was an advocate for feminism and the sexuality of women, but he also testified as an expert witness that women were not interested in sex. This was a turnaround from what he had said in the previous trial, and it was probably done to appease donors. He also, when he did a tour of the United States, he was asked to tone down the gay stuff. Mm. And he spoke about heterosexuality and... The need for less puritanical ideals in the States. I urge our listeners to find one of the many good biographies on Hirschfeld to fully appreciate him for the flawed but good-intentioned human that he was. Hirschfeld survived his institute by two years. In May 1935, he died of a heart attack in Nice, France, on his birthday. Oh. Well, he was in his 60s. That's not that old. It's not. Yeah, but for 1935, I mean, like... you lived through the war. Yeah. Your life work destroyed. All your friends being killed. (laughs) At least he lived a little longer than Cotton, who also died of a heart attack. Yes. The tomb where Hirschfeld's ashes are interned is engraved with his motto, Through Science to Justice, which I think would be an excellent tagline for (laughs) L-U-E-E. His motto was actually in Latin, but I've received enough flack for my pronunciation on the show, so I'm not even going to (laughs) try. No. That was written before I screwed up all the pronunciations in the sentence. I was just talking about Latin, but this was English I was screwing up. I'm a born pessimist, obviously, and I cannot see the current situation regarding the fascist crackdowns on transgender and queer people having any sort of miraculous turnaround. I'm sorry. As a student of history, I see these same patterns repeating themselves. Two steps forward, and then two steps dragged back. I hope I'm wrong. I also hope that we can someday get to a level of research and discovery and joy in ourselves as a beautiful, varied people through science to justice. Thank you, Lauren. Mm -hmm. That was great. Next, Laura is going to tell us all about fried foods. Woo! Yes. Fried foods. So what is your impression of fried foods and health? They're Fucking delicious. delicious. <laughs> well, I, I didn't say taste. I said health. They're delicious. <laughs> I yeah. see. So we have a, a room full of people that we can pry their fried goods out of their cold, dead hands. Okay, I mean, got it. From a, from a health perspective, usually they contain two important macronutrients. That's a word I know. <laughs> Fat and carbs. And I like both of those things. And they can, like, fried foods include things like fried meats, right? So yeah. protein as well. They can really, you can fry anything, as we've seen. Apparently, what was year was it? 2006 or eight? You know how they do those contests for new fried foods at state fairs? Yeah. Somebody had deep fried cola. Yeah, I did not click yeah. through, but... Oof. Okay, I did because I had to know. Okay. How do you deep fry a liquid? Yeah. And um, so they actually concentrate the syrup okay. and then batter that and make sort of a fritter. And like do they freeze that concentrated syrup? A la, like I don't remember ice cream. reading that, but that makes sense. Because even if you concentrate it, it's still gonna be liquidy. Like you're not yeah. gonna batter like it frozen makes sense. I think yeah. I found my 
threshold for battered foods. <laughs> you ever guess a pig's weight? Or eat a deep fried Snickers bar? There's no better way to spend a Saturday in this, our great American experiment. So when we say, when you say fried, are you thinking deep fried or do you count like pan fried things? Good question, Because Ashlyn. we did do, I did a segment, I remember this segment that I did for once about cooked meat and how that really increases your risk for cancer, but not as much as the scary statistics say. Yeah, so I vaguely remember you doing that segment. <laughs> Actually, I remember that more than most of the segments I've done, so that's something. <laughs> but these are good questions. Not well elicited in the much lauded trials that talk about how terrible fried foods are for you. Mm -hmm. Well, they are if you read through the whole often paywalled article and you actually go into the limitations and discussion and you look at the groups and you see how people are different and how they couldn't really figure out when they say fried foods, what does that really mean? Oh, our data collection method doesn't actually capture that. So we can't tell you. <laughs> Is butter a carb? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know what that was from yesterday. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's why I wanted to talk about fried foods today, because this is something that I heard a lot in nutrition school. And I mean, everybody's heard, right? If you hear anything, especially if you're thinking about heart health, like you can imagine, I think we can all imagine a picture of some doctor, probably some guy over 50 wagging a finger at somebody saying, stop eating fried foods and you'll be okay. Or, and you wouldn't have had this heart attack or whatever it is, right? Like fried foods are this culprit here. So now being the health educator that I am and having to answer real practical questions for people and working in cardiac rehab the last few years, I have had to answer this question a lot and it has got me thinking about it. So we've heard that fried foods are bad, but like I said, what does that even mean? What is a fried food, right? Because frying refers to a variety of cooking methods. It could be deep frying, which means submerging food in oil. <laughs> Shout out to deep fryers! <laughs> It could be pan frying, which again, depending on how you pan fry, could be in various amounts of oil. It also refers to things like stir frying, mm -hmm. which we don't often think of in the fried food category. So or, or even this newfangled air frying that we're hearing so much no, about. No, that one's that one is separate. It's a convection oven with a better PR team. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I was just thinking of like stir fried rice and how you get the crispy bits at the bottom and everybody fights over those bits. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go home and stir fry the rice that's in the fridge. I mean, yeah, rice, stir fried anything is pretty good mm -hmm. generally. And, and fried things are pretty good, whether it's pan fried, deep fried, whatever. So where I'm going with all of this is that we hear about fried foods, but when we actually look at the research, there's a lot of questions. First of all, when they're collecting data, even if you have 10,000 people in your trial, how do you know what they ate, especially over 10 years? You asked them? You asked them. How many times do you ask them? Probably like twice maximum. Oh, usually it's once at the beginning of the trial. <laughs> Keep a food diary. Oh, not even that. They use something I called food. I did say maximum. <laughs> yes. Yes. Most trials, they ask whenever they do these long-term trials to try to figure out which foods will kill you. They ask people usually once at the beginning of the trial what they eat generally with some kind of general questionnaire, which I'll get into in a minute. And then they don't ask them again anything about their diet and they just wait for them to die and find out like who died first and who died of what. Well, luckily nobody's ever changed their diet. So yeah. we're probably pretty safe. Yeah, exactly. I would like to go on a short rant on this topic. <laughs> Whenever doctors ask me, what do you typically eat for dinner? I say, 
would you like me to get out the last month's worth of menus or whatever? And they say, no, no, just give me a few ideas. So I say a few things and then legit every time they say something fucking judgmental about the three things I managed to come up with out of my brain. And all I want to say is like, but I eat a lot of things. I have a spreadsheet. Like, you're not letting me say all the things. (laughs) Yeah. And that sucks. And it's also a reflex that I've been working really hard to fight over many years because we are taught to listen and find the flaws. Oh, explicitly or not. That's what you're supposed to do, at least in dietetics. There's a whole thing going on. But basically, our job was to fix people's diets, right? So anytime you hear anything, even if it's good, you learned that you need to find the thing that is bad. Mm. And you need to focus in on that. I don't do that anymore. But that reflex is still there. And not everybody ignores that reflex. (laughs) Or not everybody realizes that it's a bias. Yeah, Not everybody sees it as a problem. Yeah. Yeah. When I was 10 years old, when my father was diagnosed with diabetes, they had me go to his dietitian as well. And she said, how much peanut butter do you put on a piece of bread? So I showed her on the bread and peanut butter. And she's like, no, that is twice as much peanut butter as you need. And now every Jesus. time I, but- I peanut butter a piece of bread, I think about what she said. And I'm over 40 now. <laughs> it sticks with you. Yeah, like That stuff butter. really sticks with you. She would not like my bread. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Jem's bread. That's way too much peanut butter. It's gross. Speaking of bread. He also puts too much jam on it, but I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> but that's a personal preference. It's not a dietitian thing. It's a me saying that's too much peanut butter for my liking. Thank you. My whole point was just like, they never listen to what you actually eat, even if they're asking you. So I feel like this is probably not better. Right. <laughs> yes. So back to these studies with fried foods, they will use various methods of collecting things. One of the most common is a food frequency questionnaire. Are you familiar with food frequency questionnaires? So basically, it's for anybody who isn't, it's a list of a whole bunch of foods. And they say, how often over the last year or over the last whatever time period do you eat these things? And it'll be like less than once a month, once a week, twice a week, every day, more than once a day. Like it'll be various increments, right? So we're relying on people's memory and truth telling. So you tell me how many times you've eaten broccoli over the last 12 months. Right? Like, <laughs> what I don't frequency? <laughs> Two or three times a month, maybe. Like, I right. don't know. So, so many times. How accurate is that, yeah, right? Who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Let so, me get my spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you actually might be more accurate. You have something to cross reference, but the average person who doesn't do that kind of thing would be like, oh, yeah, I eat that thing all the time when in reality they don't. Or, oh, no, I don't actually eat that when in reality they do. It's a horribly flawed method. So, anyway. So they do this kind of thing. Then they also, when it comes to fried foods, some of the things lump a whole bunch of different fried foods together. So if you answer one, you answer to like the whole category. But we also know that fried foods are very different. So fried chicken is different than fried fish. That's different than a potato chip. It's different than a deep fried Mars bar. It is different than all these different things than like stir fried tofu stir fry. Like it's, these are very different foods, but some of these questionnaires, they lump many of, not all of them, That that's not fair, but they will lump foods together. And that will be dependent on the culture and things like that too. So foods, they will give separate items to foods that are more common in certain cultures, mm-hmm. but lump together other items that are less common or less like the cultural norm, whatever yeah. it is. So that's a problem too, because you're not really eliciting. They also generally don't actually look at portion sizes for things. So how often do you eat French fries 
And so you can have, yeah, okay. So you have <laughs> two people who say, I eat French fries every day. One person eats like two fries every day. One person eats like an extra large McDonald's fries every day. That's a different thing. <laughs> These are different, but they come out the same, mm-hmm. right? So this is another problem. Also, the category of deep fried fish. Okay, so deep fried fish could include something like coconut shrimp from your all-you-can-eat shrimp fest at your local Red Lobster or something like that. It, good. it could include like fresh battered pickerel that was just caught that morning, right? That a lot of people here in Manitoba really like. Walleye, for those of you who aren't as familiar with it. I'm, I'm not even done with the list. It's astonishing to me that people could consider shrimp fish. I can't, I, okay. like, I can't, the, the, definitely the, 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 okay, so whoa, 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 particular. Whoa. I can't imagine okay. being Look, Leviticus, way. your wife is still talking. <laughs> you didn't let me finish my list. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> also, deep fried fish includes things like fish sticks. So tell me that fish sticks are the same in many ways as like a whole fish that is like pan fried in, let's say, olive oil with lemon and garlic. Tell me those things are the same type of food with the same nutrients and all of that. But it it does sound like you're being kind of judgy about these things, though. Like you clearly have a hierarchy of things that you think are better fried foods and worse fried foods. And I recognize that. The reason that I'm highlighting these things is that I think it's fine to eat these different things. I think lumping all of them together misses so much of the nuance yeah. of different things. Like trying to do studies that deep fried foods kill you or, or fried, fried foods in foods, general. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're looking, because we're looking at population, of course, they use these huge studies for population health recommendations. And so then we lump all these different things together and we lose a lot of the nuance. And so then I have someone who is coming to me who is from a different culture where traditionally they catch fresh fish and they cook it fresh in some oil and they eat it and like that. And they're saying, oh, I can't do that anymore. Where it's really, they're using a heart healthy oil and they're eating like a very nutritious food stuff that's minimally processed and things like that. So it's all the things that tick all those boxes of good nutrition things that we should all be doing, but it hit the fried category. Now that automatically makes it bad from evidence. Mm. And we do know that things like fish sticks and that, while occasional consumption is not a big deal, it's not the end of the world, I'm not against it. Frequent consumption isn't as good for health and does lead to problems. And I wouldn't blame anybody who eats those regularly, but it's something that we want to be. I think those are things that get lost in that. And even then, looking at the risk level of things, often when you look at the studies, they'll talk about, oh, it increases your risk by 2%. Your relative risk of a heart attack or something goes up by 2% versus Mm. like nothing versus not eating it. It's, it's When your absolute risk is, is so low that that 2% won't move the needle at all. Exactly. 2% of 0.05% yeah, exactly. is not very big. Right, <laughs> right. These are not massive percentages. If we used to go one-on-one and then add 66 and two-thirds percents, I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning. So of course, on a population level, we want to look at things, but the evidence isn't really there to say that fried food kills for things. So how do we on one hand talk about how good olive oil is for us, but as soon as you heat it up a little bit and put something in that oil, now it is terrible and it's going to kill you. This well, this doesn't make point. sense. It's the smoke mm-hmm. point. <laughs> right. Right. Only avocado oil? <laughs> Wait, is avocado oil bad or good in the it's, it's, fat spectrum of It's badness? very much the same as, as olive oil. Yeah, it's, it's very, very chemically similar to, to olive oil, so except it's not green. So if you like a, like a clear oil, it's good. So all of this to say, we have a lot of hysteria around fried foods. 
But we haven't even codified what fried foods are, how much people actually eat them, and we tend to lump a lot of different types of fried foods together rather than whereas we tend to know that they act differently. So we're making big groups of things and making claims on all sorts of things versus other things. Then you got to look at who's in the study and who tended to eat more of these certain types of foods or whatever it is. And then you start noticing all that other stuff that they claim they correct for but don't. Like, mm. oh, the people who have more of this and have more heart attacks, for example – are lower income, less have fewer fruits and vegetables in their diet, eat out more often, lower socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. Live Sorry. in a food all, desert. All of those things that it's like, you have not corrected for this. You have so many things. There's no way you can correct for all of them. And you certainly can't correct for the global intersection of all of those things. So two other points with it. Frequency makes a difference with things. I think fried foods are fine. I think fish sticks, if you like them, are fine. Nobody's at... <laughs> Ashlyn does not like fish sticks, apparently. <laughs> I am not a fish stick advocate. <laughs> but nobody, and, and most people, would agree that you probably shouldn't live on fish sticks alone if you have other choices, right? Like, if you have the ability to eat a variety of foods cooked in a variety of ways, do that. That's yeah. probably the best option for you. If you like fried foods... They're probably okay to include within that variety. If you don't like them, don't eat them, right? But no one is advocating that, oh, it turns it into a very black and white. All fruit, fried food is bad, therefore you should never touch it. But that's not how nutrition works. And I hate that kind of messaging. It's really, really frustrating for people and it only generates guilt and shame. And especially for people who don't have as much of a choice, it just perpetuates problems and stigma and things like that. And we know also that restricting any category of anything only makes you want it more. And when you fail in your goal of zero, you are much more likely to then overindulge in whatever it is that you have been restricting. Definitely. Yeah, there's I screwed up already might as well make yeah. yeah, exactly that that is a big part of it. And that's they kind of actually use not that argument, but adjacent arguments saying why people eat too much fast food, air quotes, air quotes, air quotes, or too much fried food rather. And they say, oh, well, it's too delicious or some blah, 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 all that like diet culture-y stuff that they talk about. But they fail to recognize that, well, why do people feel that they, why is it that they can't cook at home if they wanted to? Why is it that they have to eat really quickly? They say, oh, well, we eat too much of it because it's so good or something. It's like, well, also people maybe are on the run because they're very busy. They don't have time or whatever it is. They don't have the resources. So that is their option for or them. It's $3 for a whole meal. Exactly. And that's the cheapest There's, possible look, right. and, calories you can get. And unfortunately, like, I think fried foods are delicious, but they do, especially if they're heavily starch-based, heavily processed, they're less satisfying. So you actually need more of it to feel full and to feel like you had a full meal. So it's nobody's fault. It's just biology. That's just physiology with that. So yeah, you eat until you're full because that's what humans do in a lot of cases. So that's something to just be aware of too. That's not acknowledged with these kinds of things. And a lot of fried foods, especially the ones that are the heavily processed kind, are low in those filling nutrients like fiber and things like that. So all of that is missed. And, and so that's part of it. Now, some people say, well, what about the trans fats? Well, okay, a lot of the research and a lot of the supporting research in the references links to older studies where partially hydrogenated fats were used way more often. Oh, yeah. In Canada, they're illegal to be used for the last four years. Four years, okay? 
So tiny amounts of trans fat may be produced in oil that is repeatedly heated at high temperatures over long periods of time. But if you are doing some home deep frying with fresh oil and discarding it, basically nothing. Your risk is negligible. And even then, even in those trials, the amount of trans fats is still really low. So no, it's not going to kill you from heart disease from trans fats because there isn't any anymore. (laughs) And I'm not going to get into the pedantic arguments about dairy trans fats and that. That's another topic for another day. I think that was a whole, you did a whole segment on trans fats once. I probably did. (laughs) But the point is like, they're still referencing old studies like we talked about with some of these things. That it doesn't, that those are not the same oils that we're using today anymore. Those are not even the same cooking methods in a lot of cases. And again, what they're doing in some fast food place is not the same as what a person might do at home versus what another restaurant might do. Like you can't just equate them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of restaurants do have a much better oil change policy than (laughs) maybe your home with your recycled, like, if you've got one of those fryers that recycles the oil and just keep using that same oil. But at McDonald's, I think they have to change them like every two days or something. And they're always going to be topping it up too, mm-hmm. because as you fry things, it is going to lose some oil. Yeah. So they're always replenishing new oil into it. And then if they do a full change, then you're getting a fresh supply with these things. So again, the research that's backing up the claims about trans fats, when you actually click through and you read it, which I did today, <laughs> guess what? It doesn't back up the claim. (laughs) The last point I want to make is people are like, but, but, but what about acrylamide? And what about advanced glycation end products and those things that are going to give you cancer? (laughs) Laura, I don't think any of our listeners are are wondering about that, but please go off. If, (laughs) If you have nutrition interested people, someone will come up with this crap, okay? So all I want to say is these are the things a few years back where it's like, your french fries are going to kill you because of this carcinogen that's made from frying them. I think that's fucking bullshit. Oh, that thing. That okay. thing. That, yeah, your potato chips are going to kill you, not from the... You use big words and I didn't understand. But, I, okay. But the, 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 the yeah. Okay. The so anyways, I got. these are compounds that are made in some foods when exposed to high heat. The thing is, frying in any capacity is not the only way that makes these things. So the AGEs, advanced glycation end products, that's part of like with the meat of what's gonna kill you from it. Those are made from grilling and baking meats as well. Same thing as starches. Basically anything that browns, right? Anything that browns is also gonna make those. So your fried food, yeah, you can talk about that, but you can't ignore your grilled steak. You cannot make that argument in good faith. So I think what Laura is saying that for optimal health, we should all become raw vegans. Oh, (laughs) Ashlyn, God. (laughs) With a variety of fruits and vegetables, obviously, in our diet of raw vegan food. (laughs) Right. At the end of the day, I don't think fried food is going to kill you. And I don't think we have the evidence to make that claim. And if we do want to make that claim, we're going to have to be a whole lot better about our research methods. Yes. And we're then going to have to actually deal with the issues of why do some people eat more of these processed foods or whatever it is, the ones that actually maybe have an issue compared to others? And how can we help everybody have good nutrition? Here, here. Registered dietitian Laura Creek Newman says I can eat french fries. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Thanks, Laura.
So our house dietitian gives the okay to eating fried foods, but is it okay to eat them before surgery, Ashlyn? <laughs> no. <laughs> good segment. <laughs> yeah, good job. Yeah. If you've ever had any kind of surgery, you probably had the experience of being told you had to stop eating and drinking many hours before, except for maybe small sips of water to take necessary medications. That's what I always see. Like, oh, you can take your meds if you have to, but small sips of water, not a large sip of water. I always twig on that. Like, what's a small? (laughs) (laughs) NPO, which is a fancy... Latin phrase, nil per os, which means nothing by mouth. NPO after midnight is particularly common for surgeries. So the day before your surgery, you should not take anything by mouth after midnight. And this is a throwback all the way to the medical science of 1946. The author of a Slate article on the topic reminds us that in 1946, a gallon of gas was 21 cents, and a year's tuition at Harvard was $420. (laughs) How much is that in today's money, though? I don't know. I don't care. Still, Still, like, way better than this. Yeah. (laughs) So as we record this, that is 76 years ago, and that is when Dr. Curtis Lester Mendelson did a study into surgical aspiration in obstetric patients. I know some of these words. After having two patients die after anesthesia administered during labor resulted in the aspiration of vomit into the lungs, he studied so many pregnancies, something like 44,000 pregnancies, and found 66 cases of aspirational pneumonitis, which is what occurs when the laryngeal reflexes do not work because you're under a general anesthetic. So it's possible for your body to draw the contents of your stomach into your lungs just by process of things moving around. Not fun. The pipes are way too close together. Yeah, (laughs) and they're all poorly designed. Intelligent design. Come on. (laughs) Before Mendelssohn, the standard recommendation was to encourage patients to drink sugar water, beef tea, or quote-unquote China tea up to three hours before surgery. Bovenine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. And the three-hour fast was considered to be mostly to prevent you from having any sort of post-operative vomiting. That's what they were worried about. Mendelssohn instead recommended a 12-hour fast before surgery to prevent these aspiration cases in obstetric patients. And by the 1960s, this was the rule almost anywhere for anyone having any kind of planned surgery. When this began, it was still terrible to not eat or drink for 12 hours, but it wasn't quite the same ordeal as it is now, since almost any kind of surgery one would get involved checking into the hospital the night before, and then you'd be supervised by nurses and wheeled into the operating room and get things done. It also was a more reasonable idea in the days before we had things like endotracheal tubes and modern anti-nausea meds and other interventions and advancements in anesthesia. Today, many patients arrive at the hospital not having had anything to eat or drink since the evening before, regardless of whether their surgery is at 9am or 3pm, and as surgeries get pushed back throughout the day, the fasting only grows more egregious. Mm-hmm. One rationale for the long fast is that in case there are cancellations or changes, any patient can be moved up in the schedule. Quote, it's easier to make scheduling shifts if all patients have received the same blanket advice to fast from midnight onward. There's an efficiency imperative at work with a lot of hospitals. 
As we can all probably guess, the likelihood that you're going to go into surgery earlier than expected <laughs> is pretty low. <laughs> What's our backlog in Manitoba? We've got 30,000? 55,000, I believe. Well, even just during the same day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm just... Yeah. yeah. It's Bishing unreal. Down. We're sending people to the States to get surgery because we can't get to them in time. Anyway, anesthesiologist Joyce War researched this question and found that only 5 to 6% of patients were taken in early by any measure. And in her own hospital, it was less than 1% of people. Quote, so what we are doing in the U.S. is dehydrating a patient 95% of the time in order to preserve this unrealistic hope that a case could go earlier. What do they taste like? America? Obviously, going without food or drink for that long takes a toll on our bodies. That toll has been viewed by the medical profession as an unfortunate but necessary side effect. Negative effects of fasting include obviously hunger and thirst, but also anxiety, increased post-operative nausea and vomiting, difficulty placing IVs, slower recovery, increased need for drugs in some patient, as well as pre-op patients being huge assholes to medical staff. Yeah, because yeah. when people are hungry, they're not nice. <laughs> yeah, this is listed as an actual reason why this was yeah. <laughs> looked into. As one physician put it, the physical pressure a surgery puts on a body is much like a marathon, so it's baffling to think that patients, especially elderly ones, would commence such an event by dehydrating themselves. So does fasting even work to achieve the stated goals? A stomach as empty as possible before anesthesia is desirable, that's true. An acceptable, quote, residual gastric volume of less than 1.5 milliliters per kilogram has been used as a reasonable baseline which means that I would be allowed about one juice box worth of liquid in there, ideally. In addition, low pH of gastric contents is highly correlated with bad outcomes following aspiration. So a higher slash more neutral pH is desirable also. Does a long fast reliably achieve these goals? No. What? What? You say? what? No. what? That's the... What? Oh my god! <laughs> what are you saying? What's okay, okay. I don't want to spoil anything, so go ahead. Okay. Having acidic stomach acid get into your lungs is bad. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. What, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But but if you haven't eaten anything, that 200 milliliters is all fucking acid. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so. and, and it's not like there's no liquid in your stomach yes, and you haven't ever. taken anything Kate, in. Like the- yeah. Okay, <laughs> side note, side note, dietitians who do tube feeds, one of their most annoying things is that the gastric residual volumes, because people will be like, oh, they have something in their stomach, so we need to stop the feeds. No, that's their stomach juices. You need to keep feeding them. Yeah. <laughs> because two to 300 milliliters is totally normal at any given point. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. So, does a long fast reliably achieve these goals? How long does the average person need to fast to achieve the best results? I'm actually curious, what are you being taught right now, Jim? At this point, we are just being taught the conventional wisdom that it's important that patients be NPO before surgery. Okay. They're not giving us any timelines at this point. All that stuff, they, they get into more detail in residency. But NPO to avoid aspiration is basically the, the sum total of it. Okay. So ultrasound studies of reasonably healthy adults with no apparent risk factors for delayed gastric emptying show that despite fasting, about 6% of patients had a significant volume of fluid remaining, and almost 2% had solid contents. So do we need to fast mm. even longer to be sure? Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Many, we all need to do the poop prep. Oh, the worst. <laughs> Many doctors report that patients, having been told that they can't eat after midnight, 
often eat a large meal much later than they usually would, Mm -hmm. followed by not drinking anything for many hours. So they'll eat like a big meal at 11.45 and then stop drinking anything. That's not good. This is one reason that patients arrive at the hospital with a large amount of undigested food still in their stomachs. One anesthesiologist I read about personally calls his patients the day before to tell them to eat a normal meal at a normal time, which is pretty (laughs) above and beyond. He points out that the many, many people who might tell a patient about the surgery prep requirements and how that's another reason that blanket advice for NPO after midnight is favored by large institutions. Because then whenever any patient asks, they can all just tell them the same answer. On the other hand, multiple studies show that there is no significant difference in gastric fluid volume between those fasting versus those given oral fluids two hours before surgery. Doesn't two hours sound nice? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like, unless you have significant pre-existing gastric emptying problems, that that fluid is not going to be in your stomach. Oh, yeah. No, it's gone. In 2014, for example, the annals of the Royal College of Surgeons of England investigated the effects of giving patients a drink with complex carbs two hours before an operation. Carbohydrate loading was found to significantly improve several categories of patient comfort particularly hunger, thirst, anxiety, and nausea, as well as helping to attenuate harmful metabolic responses to surgery like insulin resistance. No adverse effects to do with aspiration were reported. A recent article in the British Journal of Anesthesia also touted the benefits of preoperative carb loading and credited it for reducing length of hospital stays and improving muscle function after surgery. Ultrasound studies have further shown that stomach volume returns to baseline within 30 minutes after even relatively large volumes of water are ingested, Mm -hmm. and that drinking water can in fact increase the rate of gastric emptying and raise the pH of gastric fluid. Adding caloric content does slow the rate somewhat. For example, clear juice is emptied at the same rate as milk if their calorie count is similar. But plain water is gone so fast! It's just gone! As we have determined by how many times I've used the bathroom during the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So based on evidence from studies like these, the American Society of Anesthesiologists issued new guidelines in 1999 and 2017. The current recommendations for an average adult allow a regular meal eight hours before surgery, a light meal like toast and clear fluids six hours before, and clear liquids until two hours before surgery. It is a little bit different for obstetric patients. They currently say that If you're planning to have like a post-birth tubal or whatever, you should avoid everything. But non-complicated obstetric patients should be allowed to drink water, at least. Not just ice chips. Right. (laughs) The Canadian guidelines are identical in these regards as far as I can tell. They also state, unless contraindicated, adults and children should be encouraged to drink clear fluids, including water, pulp-free juice, complex carb beverages, and black tea or coffee up to two hours before elective surgery. Pediatric patients should also be encouraged to consume clear fluids up to one hour before elective procedures. The ASA declares, quote, following the guidelines does not guarantee complete gastric emptying, but we also know fasting for 12 hours doesn't guarantee it either. (laughs) Another quote from Jocelyn War. If you have an operation scheduled and a physician advises you to fast for longer than two hours beforehand, refer her to the ASA guidelines and ask if she really feels a prolonged fast is necessary. It's just an education issue. Today, the data is so good. Not following the guidelines is just cruel. But what if we don't stop there? Hmm. I'm not done. (laughs) Where the current guidelines have been adopted, more on that later, there is concern that even the two-hour guideline for clear fluids is too restrictive. 
Hospital staff report that patients often arrive having not had anything to drink beforehand out of fear that it will not clear out in time, a quote, better safe than sorry approach. One project called Think Drink proposed that if this were switched to one hour, patients could be offered a drink when they check in and be encouraged rather than discouraged to drink clear fluids before arrival. For some reason, it seems like pediatric surgeons have been quicker to adapt to the times than others, so a drink of water on arrival has become standard in many pediatric surgical units in the UK. That makes sense. They probably do more ongoing studies instead of taking old stuff for granted, maybe? I don't know. Having to deal with hangry children? (laughs) (laughs) So this offering a drink to patients beforehand has reduced actual NPO, like not what they were told to do, but what actually happened, duration from between an average of 9 to 12 hours before the new rules for children to between 1.7 and 3 hours actually not having anything to drink, which is much more tolerable and less damaging. Importantly, it has also not increased the incidence of pulmonary aspiration and does not increase morbidity and mortality. Evaluations show that patients are much happier and staff are seeing faster recovery from anesthetic with less nausea. At Uppsala University's Children's Hospital in Sweden, there were similar findings where a two-hour NPO order would result in children being without water and calories for many extra hours, as surgeries were delayed and rescheduled. In 2000, the hospital decided to scrap the fluid fast for pediatric patients entirely. Gastric emptying studies found that the time to safe levels after ingestion of clear fluids in children was pretty much exactly as long as it took between being called to the operating room and actually undergoing anesthesia. (laughs) (laughs) So they now have water, apple juice, lemonade, and ice blocks available to children right up until they're called for surgery. And after six years of study, they compiled all the numbers and found that aspiration occurred in just 0.3% of patients, none of whom died. Hmm. Despite all of this, while mounting evidence and practice over decades points to long periods of fasting being totally unnecessary, and in fact harmful, most medical facilities in Canada and the US persist in requiring unnecessarily long fasts for patients. One number I could find is that in Michigan, only 25% of hospitals reported following the ASA guidelines for fasting. So <laughs> that seem, that's a pretty weird number, but that's really low, mm. <laughs> especially for something that's like, do you follow these guidelines to say no to that? <laughs> seems like a, I bet that 25% is high. <laughs> I wonder if they're like, well, these guidelines are way too loose. So we're going to say no, and it'll be much better if they think they're doing better by saying no. Mm. Yeah, they want to be safe. This is how we've always done it. It's the safest way. I hate that phrase. Oh, my God. This is how we've always done it. Uh-huh. Quote. Changing something as traditional as fasting times requires a systemic effort. Not only must physicians believe in and practice the new guidelines, but staff up and down the surgical process must adopt the new guidelines as well. All patient education materials must be updated, and anyone who has worked in a hospital knows how intractable forms and documents can be. Even medical residents and students, the future of medicine and the best chance to bring about systemic change are not well informed about the new guidelines that have been around for 20 years, which is pretty demoralizing from a patient perspective, realizing how huge this gap is in so many places between what the science tells us is true and helpful and how we are actually treated when we see a doctor. America. (laughs) Smell the dead. (laughs) It'll be interesting to see what happens when I do my anesthesia block, which is going to be First block of clerkship, actually. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I will have to report back. Yeah, I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to it. In the UK, one doctor basically summed up my whole segment in one paragraph. So (laughs) here's the Coles notes if you checked out at any point during this. 
Current preoperative clear fluid fasting guidelines for adult patients need to be reviewed with serious consideration given to updating them in line with current pediatric guidelines, which more closely reflect current evidence in real-world practice. The reality is that a two-hour minimum fast often translates into a fast of 12 hours or more, resulting in considerable patient discomfort, dissatisfaction, and potential for physiological harm. Neither does a prolonged fast guarantee an empty stomach, and clear fluid, particularly water, is emptied rapidly. Even relatively large volumes will be cleared from the stomach within 30 minutes of ingestion. Pulmonary aspiration in adults is rare, and generally only associated with significant morbidity and mortality if there is aspiration of solid matter. The guidance for children undergoing anesthesia has changed for all age groups, many of whom have similar physiology to adults. We suggest that national governing bodies consider adopting a one-hour clear fluid fasting guideline for all age groups. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very we well are done, Ashley. Well done. We are suffering unnecessarily, and Definitely. they know it. <laughs> and this is something that's part of what's studied in hospitals with the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force. It's a significant contributor to ongoing malnutrition mm. for especially yeah. older adults because they will often, if they are in hospital already, they're always on standby. And mm. the number of times it's like, oh, NPO today because maybe surgery. Oh, no, it got canceled. So, yeah, they can yeah. get supper. But NPO tomorrow, and this goes on and yeah. on and on. I mean – the last time I had any sort of surgical procedure, NPO was really advised because it was a colonoscopy. So <laughs> yeah. there are there are there certain are exceptions. exceptions. Yeah. Yes, yes, there are definitely reasons. But as a blanket statement for absolutely everything, it's yeah, doesn't sound like it. There's any evidence for that. And I especially liked the fact that it's including things that have sugar in them. So you don't even you can even drink apple juice like right up until you go in. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for that, Ashlyn. Before we move on to something nice, we're going to do a brief follow-up on our episode from last year, episode 169 on legislative prayer. So if listeners recall, on that episode, we spoke to Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff, our favorite guest. Um, <laughs> our resident expert on all things. <laughs> wearing one of his hats for the BC Humanists, he had undertaken a study in the wake of the Saguenay decision of municipalities across Canada and whether or not they were still engaging in unconstitutional prayer. BC Humanists have now released their report on prayer at city council meetings in Manitoba. And I will quote from it here, which they title, In Open Defiance, mm-hmm. Unconstitutional Prayers at Municipal Councils in Spoilers. Manitoba. <laughs> As listeners may recall, the 2015 Saguenay City decision in the Supreme Court of Canada found the practice of opening municipal council meetings with a prayer to be unconstitutional. In specific, it's a violation of the state's duty of religious neutrality. However, BC humanists have found that despite this ruling, several municipalities across Canada have continued this practice. So this report outlines their findings in Manitoba. So the way they divide their report is between inaugural meetings, which tend to be more sort of, there's more pomp and circumstance, there's more symbolic, more symbolic gestures. These are the meetings that are used to open council sessions for the year, or usually actually, excuse me, open council sessions after a new council is elected. And these are generally more likely to have prayer in them. So they found that six municipalities in Manitoba had unconstitutional prayer at their inaugural city council meetings. But four municipalities, including Winnipeg, 
Surprise. have prayer at every regular council meeting. Can I just say I was shocked that Steinbeck doesn't? Yeah, yeah. that's wild. <laughs> yeah, they have them at the inaugural meetings, but not every meeting. Right? That's so strange. I'll quote from the report from BC Humanists now. Members of the BCHA research team wrote to every municipality that was found to have included prayer in their inaugural or regular meetings, specifically asking that future meetings be made compliant with Saguenay. The rural municipality of Rhineland replied that councillors were no longer required to provide a prayer, but, quote, sometimes councillors read devotions, short stories, prayers, or fables, any denomination or faith, as part of the opening, or sometimes comment on recent events or news in our region. Other councillors use the opening to recognize outstanding achievement of community members slash organizations or sporting teams, end quote. The rural municipality of West St. Paul agreed and replaced its invocation with opening remarks from the mayor in mid-February 2021. So that's six, and four is actually now down to five and three. The city of Winnipeg, by contrast, initially ignored our inquiry. After we requested a legal review that had been completed under the province's Freedom of Information Law, the city eventually provided us with a completely redacted document. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. That's it wild. Is, it's, it's beyond parody. I, like, I am not surprised, though. No. Nothing about this city council surprises me. <laughs> so it's frustrating, <laughs> I guess. It's like it's, it's such a, real a basic fuck you. <laughs> it's such a basic request. Like I don't personally feel slighted by this as an atheist, but I know that if I had another religious affiliation that I might feel given that these prayers are almost always Christian prayers, predominantly Protestant Christian prayers, I would feel like I was being treated like less of a citizen. Mm. And that's not cool. And regardless of how you feel, <laughs> and by you I mean me, about the idea of, like, rule of law. I'm not particularly worried about it uh, I was myself. trying to figure out how to phrase this myself, so thank <laughs> you. That was well done. Regardless of how you feel about that, it is kind of laughable to have a legislative body, like a city council, just... So, like, we don't really care about this law. Yeah. <laughs> Open, we don't like it. <laughs> openly flout a yeah. federal law. Yeah. 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 So our thanks to the folks at the BC Humanist Association for bringing that to our attention. If any of our listeners in Manitoba or in wider Canada are interested in this Saguenay project that the BC Humanists are doing, you can find more at bchumanist.ca. And if you're in Manitoba and you feel strongly that, say, Winnipeg or Hanover or R Rhineland should stop opening all of their meetings with a prayer invocation, then maybe get in touch with them. Where the hell is the RM of Rhineland? It's down south. It's like Winkler, Altona area. Germany. Oh, I've never passed that sign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't see RM signs all that often. You see the town signs more often. But So with that little update out of the way... Why don't we move on to something nice? Okay, I have something nice and miraculous that happened today. I have become weirdly outgoing on my new medication. I have made spontaneous plans with multiple people which I've never done in my life, just like reached out to someone and been like, hey, you want to hang out? No, we haven't seen each other in forever, but we should hang out. 
I'm not that person. But it resulted in getting to have lunch with my cousin today, which was really nice. I haven't seen her in many years. And it was lovely. And we talked for a very long time, which meant that I forgot about my parking. And I was about half an hour expired by the time I ran out to my car, pushing the button for extend, extend, extend. (laughs) And I turned the corner and I saw the parking attendant next to my vehicle. And I went, shit. And then I started running toward him and I was, I'm so sorry, I just extended it. And he was like, is this your car? And I was like, yeah, I'm so sorry. And he gave me a thumbs up and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was so good. (laughs) That pretty much made my day. And after my lunch, I was like so amped. I felt like maybe this is what extroverts feel like when they're around people and they feel energized after. It was a weird experience. Wow. (laughs) But it was nice. That's my something nice. Nice. Maybe I should start taking stimulants. (laughs) Meth. Meth is the answer. (laughs) It's only a precursor to meth, what I take. (laughs) Because <laughs> your sleep problems aren't bad enough. Yeah, I, I, I'm taking I'm taking baby stimulants. Just, just can't be. Come on. My something nice is I'll be going to school in the fall. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Two people in grad school. Technically, my degree is an undergraduate degree. So once I'm Dr. Newman and Laura has her master's, she will outrank me. She Excellent. will have a graduate degree. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Except in societal authority and respect. But between you and me, you know that all I care about is which is technically a higher rank. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You do have that against him. (laughs) Like a medical doctorate is considered an undergrad degree? No, no, no. no. It is not a doctorate. A medical doctor degree is not a doctorate. Okay. A doctorate is a PhD or... Okay. There, are, there are other doctors. It is like, weird that it's not considered master's level. That is strange because, because a you lot have of, to do an undergraduate degree first, don't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. And and a lot of other professions are at master's level. So if you want to get further education, you end up with like you end up in doctorate level rather than master's level would be up. It is weird. Can you get a master's in doctoring? You, kind of. Yeah, you can get a master's in lots of medical fields. Okay. And there are concurrent master's degrees that people, one of my classmates, well, I'm sure. A couple of your classmates, I think. One classmate that I know of for sure is doing her master's concurrently. How? (laughs) Like it's part, it's kind of part of the program. It rolls into it. They make it easier to make it. There's also like MD, PhD programs. There's also. I want to hear more about Laura and why she's going back to school though. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're going back to school. Yay. Thank you. Congratulations. (laughs) you could talk about supernatural uh, yeah you like that i think i will do that so just before christmas ashlyn bought herself a vr headset and then she bought dave one for christmas because she can't well it's more fun to play with a friend (laughs) but we've recently got into this program called supernatural which is if you know what beat saber is it's sort of the same but it's got more of a workout focus and you're put onto basically a large hill or something in various beautiful locales around the world. And then you work out two fun songs. And Ashlyn and I are both basically supernatural evangelists. I don't know why it's called supernatural. It's pretty natural. It's like extremely natural. Like they put you yeah. in these beautiful natural it's environments. natural. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a space in between the words. <laughs> and like Ashlyn was doing one today and... The instructor actually said something good about food 
or something? Yeah, like there's no diet culture garbage as far as I can tell nice. in this very popular workout program. Wow. They're very encouraging and about meeting yourself at the level where you are and working on that. And it's very good. Great. So. Sounds awesome. It's refreshing to see a mass marketed product like that that is mm-hmm. so positive and not fat phobic. And it's super fun, like doing these moves with these bats that you're trying to hit these things with like you feel so powerful like, <laughs> smashing things to the symphony or whatever yeah, it's so going out to the pogues first the overture so <laughs> nice <laughs> that sounds great oh, they have one workout called sweating in the flannel and it's all like <laughs> 90s alternative stuff so old people like me can get into it too <laughs> that sounds super fun and there's a disney playlist for the rest of us <laughs> Yeah, anyway, it's really good. All right, Newman. So my something nice. As usual, I'm going to bend the rules and mention two nice things, but they are related. So first, a short story that I wrote called Passepartout has won first prize in the Bedford International Writing Competition. Yay! Yay! Passepartout and the other stories that placed in the competition will be published in an anthology that will be available later this year, but they are available to read for free right now on the Bedford Competition website, and I'll link them in the show notes too. This was surprising to me that this placed, because it's not a particularly like, oh, this this is great, I'm just... I'm just going to shit all over your own story? (laughs) It's a good story. And it's interesting, and I haven't read anything like it before, and it was, it's stuck in my head, and I read it like six months ago, probably again, like a pre-version, and it's an amazing story, so don't sell yourself bloody short. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. Um, (laughs) It was something that I had just been thinking about, and just like a lot of my stories, it is quite political, and maybe even a little polemical, but short and readable, and it did very well, apparently, so check it out if you'd like. Jim Newman reviews his own work. Short but readable. <laughs> Three stars out of five. Right? But that, that was almost musical. It, it's political, a little bit polemical, but it, above all, it's readable. <laughs> less short, hopefully not less readable, is Persistence of Vision, a near-future novelette of mine that is also slated to be published right away. It will be included in a cyberpunk anthology called Surge that's coming out on April 30th. That's just weeks away when this episode drops. An early draft of Persistence of Vision received an honorable mention from Writers of the Future a couple years ago. Yes, for those listeners who are in the writer world, that is L. Ron Hubbard's writing competition. He's got the certificate framed on the wall and everything, y'all. I do! (laughs) It's got L. Ron Hubbard's name bold (laughs) on his wall. The ebook for the Surge anthology is available for pre-order now through Amazon. Paperback copies will also be available at the end of the month, I believe. But the ebook is an absolute steal at less than $3. Only $2 American. I ordered it. So luckily, I don't have to be extremely mean and put my co-hosts on the spot here and demand that they review my work because I have done that already. But I will probably have both of these stories available for free on my website at some point over the summer, but med school's a little busy right now. So if you're interested in reading either of these stories, Passepartout is available at the Bedford Competition website, and Persistence of Vision, which is quite a bit longer, is available for pre-order now. It's also excellent. Thanks. Thanks for serving as beta reader. <laughs> I really appreciate <laughs> that one. 
Well, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? I really want to do the forbidden knowledge one. I think it'll be really fun. (laughs) (laughs) The the cursed knowledge? Yeah, cursed knowledge, cursed knowledge. That's what it was. Okay, well, let's do it then. We're each going to tell you about a piece of cursed knowledge that we have either researched or acquired somehow. Enjoy. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for listening. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. So I'm going to start us off. Us off. Start start us off. I'm just making this difficult for Marissa. I don't know why I'm doing this. (laughs) Medical illness... uh, Excuse me. Mental illness... As you might or mad. It is Ecclesiastes, though, right? Yeah. You put an extra... I always put an extra... Okay. I wasn't sure if if that was like, okay, okay. I just assumed I'd been saying it wrong this whole time. My pastors were saying it wrong. Because I'm like, Lauren knows lots of stuff. So I'm going to go with Lauren Lauren on this one. Lauren also puts extra syllables into things, especially words that they haven't used in decades. Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Wait, did they get that on purpose? Yes, actually. Okay, drop that in. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Marissa. I wonder how many sorry Marissas she's going to have to edit out. <laughs> she's going to send you all a message if you say sorry, Marissa, one more fucking time. Yeah, I, I welcome it. I get the, the tally of all the ums that we say. Nice. It's very exciting. There'll be a lot We're of getting those, better. sorry. <laughs> hmm. Now, so uh, in the UK, I've seen so, so many times. Well. Gen, or like 80% less ums. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, who's starting this off? Who's got something nice? Well, you didn't even say yeah, time he, for something nice, did you? She I did. did the intro and then I, I said, oh, can right. I go to okay. the bathroom first. Laura, you got. <laughs> She's got a yawn. <laughs> I'm really tired. All right. Oh, double yawn. Okay.